Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his other brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see that will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. And they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought, bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. The word of the Lord. Today, uh, as, as you've noted from some of the things we've said and the setup outside, is today's, today is Christ Church Vienna's 11th birthday or 11th anniversary. Um, normally, what a pastor is supposed to do on such an occasion is to talk about our re- renewing our vision and values or casting a vision on where we're going. Um, but I've been wrestling with a problem to help me figure out where we're going, which is I'm not sure what has happened to us. And I don't mean us as a church. I mean, when I look back at 2011, when we started this church, um, smartphones were not ubiquitous, TikTok didn't exist, let alone half the other ones that have come up since 2009, 10, 11. We didn't go through quite the series of political turmoil and divisions. Um, We hadn't quite wrestled fully with what it means to be human and all the challenges that that's been for each of us. We didn't have a pandemic that caused us to be increasingly more isolated than we already were, causing us to be defensive and fearful of one another, and losing sight of what matters sometimes 
What I see now as I'm diagnosing the problem is none of us are well. No local church or organization, no individual family, most individuals. We're not totally, we're not sure what's just happened to us. And so as I look ahead to say, what, what are we supposed to be as the church, Christ Church Vienna, in the years coming after 2020? One thing that I keep coming back to, and I think I said it a year ago, and it's this simple phrase, be faithful. Be faithful today. That's what you're supposed to do. That's what we're supposed to do. And for me, at this moment, being faithful means preaching God's word. And so we're going to continue on looking at Genesis as we've been doing all summer and into this fall, and specifically looking at Genesis 37 and some of the chapters that follow. Genesis 37 begins the latter portion of the book of Genesis that we've been in for months. And it begins with this phrase that... um, that says, these are the generations of Jacob. It's a way of dividing Genesis to basically say the rest of the book, Genesis 37 to 50, is about Jacob's sons. Now, this morning we read about Joseph, and most of Genesis 37 to 50 is about Joseph following him, but actually the whole section is about Jacob's sons, all of them, the sons of Israel, their failure, their fraction, fracturing, but also how God's hand is using them, bringing about redemption and reconciliation. It's the story, as we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks, about how God uses a fallen favored son in Joseph to save his own family and bring about the possibility of God's redemption in the Exodus, and how God in this underlying story is raising up um, a sinful fourth son named Judah, the son of a rejected wife, through whom God's covenant is going to continue. And so this morning, we're just going to look at the beginning part of this, Genesis 37 and a little bit at 39 and 40. I didn't have us read all of it, but it's amazing narrative. And whenever I read scripture, I I ask three questions. I tell other people, these are the three questions I always ask. What does it tell us about God, humanity, and the gospel? What does this passage What does this story, this first episode of Joseph, tell us about the nature of God, the nature of humanity, and the gospel? And there's two phrases that I've been sticking with the past couple of of days to hold on to it. It's the word faithfulness and this famous word withness that I just made up. Withness. God is with you. So just to start the whole thing off, If you're reading the part that Claire just read for us, Genesis 37, where Joseph has this technicolored dream coat and he's thrown into a pit and sold off, the question that I ask is this, what do we make of Joseph? And to know what we make of Joseph, we have to start with his clothing, right? He's he's got this famous robe, and the robe, it says in the English Standard Version, was many colored. It's actually a historically uh, infamous word, hard to translate. No one really knows what it means. It could mean long hemmed garment. It could be ornately ornamented. But here's the basic meaning of it, and we have to understand robes and garments are important in the ancient world, and especially in this whole narrative story. But the robe that Joseph is wearing is the robe that his father has given him to say, you are my chosen and favorite son. I have 12 sons. You're my favorite. You're the chosen one. You're my beloved. So he marches around with this robe for all the people to see. But it wasn't just that he was loved, beloved in some way that was 
you know, showing that favoritism that Jacob himself had experienced and carried on in his own life, that dysfunction. He wasn't just favored. What you wore on you, your clothing, indicated your status. In an honor culture, the robing that you wore indicated whether you were a prince or a pauper. It, it could have indicated your birthright, that to wear this particular robe, and I think there's indication here, that the robe that he's given is not just, I love you very much, and I know you like colorful things, here's your colorful coat. It is, you are the 11th son, but I'm going to extend the firstborn son's status to you. You will carry on the family name. You will be the head of household when I die. And there's also indication that your robing in that ancient world indicated your inheritance status. So they didn't have uh, legal documents kept in a filing case or kept on the cloud. One of the, the um, Old Testament scholars noted that your robing would have indicated your, your place in the inheritance line. And it could have been kind of, in a sense, woven into it that this robe indicates you will have firstborn status when it comes to all the money and wealth of the family. We know this in a sense because some of it happens in later stories. David, before he is king, makes a covenant with Jonathan, who at the time is prince, the son of the king. When they make a covenant, what happens? Jonathan takes off his robe, his princely robe, which indicates he is the future king, and gives them to David. So it's not just, hey, let's be brothers. It is, you're the rightful future king. And when the prodigal son returns, besides hugs and kisses and killing some animals, what does the father do? He puts sandals on his feet, a ring on his finger, and a robe on him. He's re-inheriting him, even though he's wasted his inheritance. Joseph is being given all the status of firstborn son, all the chosenness. And in every way, this was breaking social cultural norms. Everyone knew firstborn sons were supposed to get this. Joseph was the 11th son. And yet, Joseph doesn't seem to have any qualms about it. He's not like, Dad, I don't think I should have this robe. Or, hey, Reuben, the oldest son, you should really have it, but, you know, it's Dad, he gave it to me. What we see instead is he, he parades around in the thing. He wants them to see it. When he goes to find them far away, he's wearing the robe on his long journey. Like, hey, guys, here I come. And not only that, but we didn't read it, but he has these dreams. He's a dreamer, as they say. And his dreams are twofold, and he tells the, the brothers both times. The, the first dream is, hey, we were, you know, had sheaves, we were harvesting, and, and all our sheaves were there, and yours bowed down to mine. What do you guys think it could mean? And then there was this other time when the sun and the moon and the 11 stars, I happen to have 11 brothers, all bowed down to me. What do you guys think it means? Is he arrogant or just naive? He's clearly self-absorbed, and by a clinical definition, he may be a sociopath. He has no ability to have compassion or empathy or, or see things from another person's perspective. It's a sociopath. And he clearly doesn't have any sense of what he's doing. Old Testament scholar Robert Alter used these terms to define Joseph, in this first part of the story, he said he's a spoiled child, a tattletale, and an adolescent narcissist. You know, a question I've been asking um, as I've been reflecting on where we are as individuals and as Christians is this question. It's kind of a, it's this question, does anyone change? 
Does anyone actually change? If you're following Christ, if you say you're a believer in Christ, do you actually change? Five years, ten years later. Are you more mature in your faith? More faithfully following God? The idea is this. We're designed to be made into the image of Christ. So do you, five years, ten years later, look more and more like Christ? More humble? Less defensive? Less quick to anger? More generous? Generous of spirit? Generous of resources? Do you look more like Christ? Joseph, in our story, and we didn't get to it fully because it comes in chapter 39 and 40, he does change. He goes from being self-absorbed little brat to humbled. He resists temptation. He begins serving others. He uses his abilities for the good of all, not just himself. And he acknowledges God explicitly, which he never does in Genesis 37. We see this happening as he deals with the temptation that has brought him in Genesis 39 when he's in Potiphar's house. So Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. That's a pretty bad thing to happen. And then he's brought to the house of Potiphar, who is kind of a a leader in Egypt, but he's a slave there. And we we read this and say, okay, he's he's successful. He's um, his. He has the favor of his master. He's in charge of the whole household. But he has one problem. We're not going to put the verse up here. In the end of verse 6, it says that he was handsome, comely, and form and appearances. Basically, he was a hottie. Okay, so he's like 18, 19-year-old, gorgeous young man, and the wife of his master spots him. And that's where we're going to pick up here. So in verses 7 through 10, she sees him and she says this, chapter 39. After a time... His master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, very blatantly, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And she, and as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. You know, it would have been very easy for him to justify doing this. It could have been just self-piteous. Like, look at what's happened in my life. My life stinks. I kind of deserve this. Deserves something, and she's throwing herself at me. What can I do? He could have used it to take advantage politically, like used her to get angles. And it happened day after day, day after day. She's appealing to him. Come on, day after day. Not just one time. I always remembered it as one time, but reading it this time, I was like, wait, day after day, day after day. We don't know whether that was a week or months. So why doesn't he do it? In verses 8 and 9, he gives his response, and his response is sort of threefold. One, it has to do with, it has to do with responsibility, okay? 
He basically says, I'm in charge of my master's house. I am working and laying my life down to, to create a common good for everyone in this household. I have a duty and a responsibility, a vocational calling. This is outside of that. Let me fulfill what is before me to do and to, to my calling. And it's amazing how just doing what you're supposed to do, like your responsibility, enables you to resist temptation. But the second, and it's much deeper, is relationship. He said, I have a relationship with my master, with Potiphar. I, I serve him. I cannot do this thing that would be a sin against him. And on top of that, you have a relationship with him. He's hinting at something that is clear throughout Scripture. It's clear in the Ten Commandments and the way that they're laid out. It's all sin breaks relationship. All sin breaks relationship. So adultery, which is what he's being invited into here, is sex outside of the confines of a marriage. It's sex with somebody you're not married to. And that, of course, breaks the relationship with a married spouse. It's you kind of breaking in and saying, this person, this woman or this man, is not worth being treated with the respect of an eternal and lifelong covenant. I want their body, not their life, not them. You're devaluing them as a human and breaking relationship, even as it looks like you're connecting. And that's an external thing. What about even something that no one else sees, like pornography? Of course, that's a breaking of a relationship. You're taking the person you're looking at and devaluing them as a human. You're making yourself cut off from other people. And it's hard to then relate to other people that you're sexually attracted to without putting that lens on it, that fake lens. It's devaluing of all the humans, including yourself, and breaking relationship with them. It says that I have relationships with my master, you with his, as his wife. We can't do this. But the main reason, he says, is this wickedness, not just against his master, is against God. It's righteousness. Sin is always against God. What is right or wrong, good or true, is always defined by God. God is, as we talked about it in, uh, in June, God is the authority, the definer of what is right and good and true. He always is. And so even if it's culturally acceptable to do something and you want to do it, and by the way, both of these things were true in that day and age. As a slave, he could be used this way, and he could have just been like, well, I didn't have the power to do anything. It would have been completely normative, normal for him to do this as a slave, to just do what he was told. But even if it's culturally acceptable, God's defining cuts across culture and time and our own wants and desires. And Joseph says, I cannot sin against God. And so he resists. Faithfulness. Faithfulness is what we do, what we're called to do, when our life falls apart or when you can't see the future, which is where a lot of us are right now. It's the invitation of God again and again to just be faithful, to trust and follow him, basically to obey. And to obey God is not this. It's not to be in that place of thinking, how can I obey God in this particular area for the next 40 years? God's not saying, be faithful and obey me for the next 40 years. He's saying, be faithful right now, today, just today. You don't know what tomorrow holds. 
Be faithful to me today. Love those that I call you to love. Serve those that are before you. Give, forgive, turn away from, worship, pray. Right now in this moment, what is God calling you to do? To seek him and follow him. Joseph, we see, is a changed young man between Genesis 37 and 39. Why? How? It's not totally clear, but one thing seems to be a thread that, um, that the writer of Genesis is trying to put before us, especially in Genesis 39, is that God was with him in his suffering. He was with him in the, as a slave in Egypt. He was with him even in the dungeon that he got thrown into after he was falsely accused of committing adultery or trying to. But the question is this, is God being with us enough? If it was like, hey, I know you're going through some hard stuff, but don't worry, God is with you. Is that enough? Consider Joseph's psychology in the rise and falls that he, he goes through. So he is trafficked by his own brothers who assault him, strip him, and throw him in a cistern, which would basically be like a pit you can't get out of. And he's thinking, they're going to kill me by leaving me here to die. But then they bring him out, and he's like, okay, all they've done is broken a few of my bones as they threw me into this pit, and now everything's going to be okay, right? That was a bad joke, uh, you guys. But then they sell him into slavery. Chains are put on his neck, hands behind his feet, shackled like he is, he is a slave taken to Egypt to be sold as human chattel. Can you imagine? He's 17 years old, like a high school senior, junior, the fear and despair. A foreign country where he doesn't know the customs or the language, and he will never see his family again. This is his death sentence. But then he's enslaved in Potiphar's house, and he rises. A couple years later, he's now in charge of everything. And we read it, and we gloss over the fact that he is still a slave. It's like, Oh, he's the house slave, and it was great because he was in charge of so much, and look, God was with him, and he was successful. But he is 2019, and he is a slave. And then his master's wife tries to come on to him. He resists, and then she falsely accuses him of rape, and he has no recourse, no legal standing, no hope at all, and so he's thrown in prison. It's not a low-security prison, but the description is, oh, and then he was in charge of everything. Oh, isn't it great? Hey, you're in charge of the house of the prison. He was in a dungeon in Egypt. He has no hope at all. But then in that process in Genesis chapter 40, he interprets the dreams of two guys who were close to the Pharaoh, a cup bearer and a baker. And he says to the one, oh, in three days, Baker, you're going to be executed, sorry. And in three days, cupbearer, you're going to be raised to your place as right hand of Pharaoh. When you get to that place, remember me, because I shouldn't be in here. I'm falsely accused, and I've been faithful. And of course, it happens. The cupbearer is elevated, but he forgets. In Genesis 40, 23, the end of the chapter, it says, the cupbearer did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. He's in his early 20s, years since he was in Israel with his family. He's been a slave, falsely accused, and now he's in this dungeon. But, but, Genesis 39 says, but the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. 
does that make it all better? How do we respond when we're dealing with suffering and loss, when our life falls apart, when something goes the way we don't want it to? You know, most people just want the circumstance to end. We want things to change, right? One friend reflecting back on a season of challenge like that said, at that moment, I just wanted to be dead. I'd rather be dead than be dealing with this. We're more likely to pray, take this cup from me. Not as you will, but as I will, O Lord. We just want the circumstance to change. My own leaning in my past, um, when things are going poorly, when I'm dealing with challenges or or loss of some sort, it's just self-pity. I'm good at that one. It's a self-absorbed way of saying, I either kind of resort to who cares about everything, doesn't matter, or I deserve. So I just kind of do whatever I want, a self-focused thing. As I've observed through the years, other people just lose trust in the church, in Christian leaders, in Christians, and in God. There's a guy I know who lost his brother when he was young. It was a brother he loved and looked up to. And his conclusion was, I can't believe in a God who would let this happen. Suffering and loss can push us away from God, but it can also be the very thing that reveals more of God. God's goodness, His providential care, His grace, especially as our other loves and trusts are stripped away. When we lose things we value, we realize, I was idolizing, worshiping, needing this to be. And when those come away, it's an opportunity to say, what I really need is you, Lord. When I look back on some seasons of loss in my life, a particularly hard one, I found that the process of going through that loss and that grieving humbled me more. It enabled me to have more compassion and empathy than I had before. And it actually deepened my relationship with God. Because I began to experience aspects of God in loss and suffering and grief, aspects that I'd known about intellectually, believed in intellectually, but had not experienced. And in that process of turning towards God and experiencing more of Him, realizing that all I really need, all I really want is the Lord. How did Joseph respond when things fall apart? You know, the, the hard part for Joseph is we read the story, and, and most of us, if you've grown up in the church or if you've seen that, you know, animated movie that, uh, that Spielberg did years ago, you know the story. You know the end story. Okay, the end story is he doesn't stay in prison forever. Spoiler alert, next chapter he gets elevated out. And then he's in charge of all of Egypt, and then a famine hits, and he saves his family because he's the one who's managing. He's like the prime minister of Egypt. It's amazing. God uses him to save his family, and we're like, Joseph, just hold on a couple more years. But in that moment, as he is enslaved in a foreign land, as he is now in a dungeon for something he didn't do, he doesn't know that he's going to get out. He doesn't know there's going to be an end. But we read that the Lord was with Joseph. And there's some sense in which the Lord being with Joseph was enough. Maybe it took a while for him to realize it, but that it was enough. When he's in prison, the end of Genesis 39, 
uh, verse 21, it reads this, but the Lord, Yahweh, this is the covenant name of God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love, chesed, which Dean talked about. In prison, Joseph, the selfish little jerk, continues to serve other people, work for the good of all people, faithfully and humbly. What had changed? He had been changed by the power of God's presence in his most dark moments. And it's an indication that uh, the presence of God, the witness of God, can be cultivated even in a dungeon. When you are all alone, you will commune with someone. Hear that again. When you are all alone, you will commune with someone. It will be the Lord who's always there saying, I am with you, or it will be yourself. And the enemy likes to use the other one. <laughs> Despair, fear, anxiety, keep rolling, or peace, trust, hope. You and I are human beings, and we need to not be alone. There's a, a, a new beer out in Loudoun County. A bunch of brewers put together a beer, a collective beer, that's called You Are Not Alone Ale. Now, this is, okay, it's not that funny, but um, because they're raising money, hear this, they're raising money for National Suicide Prevention Month. And that's the phrase that they know is important for combating despair and hopelessness. You are not alone. You are not alone. This is not a Christian thing. It's a human thing because God made us in his image to be in relationship. And you need to know you are not alone in whatever despair and hopelessness you're in. When you're suffering, you need to know you are not alone. I've seen this as a pastor. When people are dealing with cancer or loss or failures, dealing with death and grief, depression, you need to know, and not just know intellectually, you need to experience withness. You need the power of presence. People showing up, people say, what should I say if I go to the hospital to visit? It doesn't matter if you say anything, just show up. Make sure they're okay with you showing up. But you need to be present with people physically, proximately, to say, I am with you. You are not alone in this. But that need that we all have to not be alone relationally points to a deeper spiritual and eternal need. It's the need to know that God is with us, that we are not alone even when we're by ourselves, that there is a God who understands, loves us, is good, that this God is sovereign over all of creation and history and my own life and whatever it is I'm dealing with right now. Joseph. Joseph was the chosen son, but he was hated by his brothers, stripped of the robe that he was wearing and sold as a slave, left for dead. But in the midst of that, God used it. Joseph couldn't have seen it. A famine comes, but by that point, Joseph is prime minister and saves the covenant family, his own family. And Joseph gives a summary of the whole thing to his brothers, which we may get to in a couple of weeks, in chapter 50, when he tells his brothers, you, this is verse 20 of chapter 50, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. I couldn't have seen it at the time, to bring it about that many should be kept alive. And this is the story of the gospel, too. Jesus was the chosen son of the Father. 
He was also Emmanuel, God with us. He was rejected by his brothers, sold for some silver, stripped, cast out, killed, so that you and I might be robed in Christ's righteousness, become sons and heirs of the King. So we might be brought near God with us, not just with us, but in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Whatever happens in your life, suffering, loss, betrayal, whatever dungeon you're in right now, we can know this. We can know this. First, God knows. He too has experienced grief and betrayal and pain and hell. God knows your suffering. You are not alone. Secondly, you can know God loves you. You may not know why the things are happening in your life the way they are, and you may never know. You may not get the divine narrator's perspective in this lifetime. But whatever is happening cannot be because God doesn't love you. The cross was God's plan for the one he loved the most to bring about his greater good. God knows, God loves you, God is with you. No matter what happens, he is with you and will not leave you. And there is power. There is power in experiencing God's presence with you. And it's available. But we pray, Lord, I need you. Lord, I want to experience your withness. And so my invitation to us as a church, as people, is to look to him, to fix our eyes on Jesus. Look to him, his presence with us, and the power to walk in that faithfulness and not lose heart. God is with you. Let's pray. God, many of us wrestle with confusion and loss and suffering, things that have happened in our lives recently over the past couple of years or a long time ago. And the pain of them, even as we talk about them, is so strong. We feel like we're the only ones. Show up for us, Lord. Fix our eyes towards you. Remind us that you are not only with us, but you are in us. that no matter where we are or what we're going through, we will never be alone. And there is power in the presence of the God who has entered human history in our own lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, how I need